Welcome to this week's episode of The Running Effect. I'm your host, Dominic Schleter, and I'm so glad that you have clicked on this episode because we have a special one in store. But if you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, The Running Effect's mission statement is to enlighten, equip, and motivate the next generation of runners with advice from the best in the sport that will elevate your running to the next level. And in this episode, we have a very special guest. His name is Patrick Lemieux. And if you've heard that name, it might be because he is the husband of Gwen Jorgensen. Um, Gwen won Rio in the tri- uh, won a gold medal in Rio in the triathlon in 2016. Um, and he was a big part behind that. Um, he helped her to an extraordinarily extent to help her uh, reach that amazing goal. But in this episode, we go through Pat's career and how he got started in cycling. He was actually a professional for two years. We get into all of that, Um, but also his journey in sports management, which has a lot to do with Gwen and her winning Rio in 2016, as I just mentioned. We'll explore what the sports management world looks like currently and how even COVID has affected it. We'll also go through what makes an athlete valuable to a brand and so, so much more. Um, We go through so many of these questions that are just not only um, applicable to so many people right now, um, but also super, super fascinating from an outsider's perspective or just a fan's perspective. Um, But Patrick is a super nice guy and has so much wisdom to share, especially on these topics and really just has a lot of great stories to share. Um, I really enjoyed this episode and a special thanks goes out to Patrick for giving me so much of his time to record this episode. It was a joy and pleasure to do so. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with the man, the myth, the legend, Patrick Lemieux. Pat, how are you doing on this wonderful afternoon? I'm doing great, Dominic. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, It feels like true Portland weather today. It's, you know, 56 degrees and pouring rain. But, uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, we desperate, we had an, an, an amazing April here. We really needed the rain. So I'm happy that it came. Awesome. Um, that That's really funny. So speaking of everyday life in Portland, uh, could you take us through what a normal day in the life looks like for you? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, every day isn't the same, but there's certainly themes to them. So, you know, I would say the theme is normally I wake up at 6.15 in the morning. I do some emails, do some work. Stanley's alarm goes off at 7.15. And he has a, uh, he's usually already up, but he knows when his, he's got a light in his room. And when his light turns green, he's able to leave the room. So he calls for me at 7.15 and then uh, we hang out for about an hour. We have, we have breakfast, some family time. We'll usually play, we'll do some sort of game that he wants to play. And then um, for about a month now, he has not, even today in the rain, he commuted on his bike to school. So it's about a mile ride for him. Uh, generally all downhill, but he rides his bike to school every day. And then, um, that's when I try to do the bulk of my work is from eight forty-five till one. And then we come home, have lunch together. He takes a nap. I'll exercise, do a little bit more work. And then from three forty-five, uh, we play, we have dinner around six, do some more hanging out as a family play. Uh, lately we've been trying to do a family sauna. And then uh, we go to bed, it's lights out at 8.30, and, and that's that's really it. That definitely sounds like a jam-packed day, but a fun one nonetheless. Um, and speaking of dinner, which on my end will be coming up soon, because I'm three hours ahead of you, um, if you had Gordon Ramsay, the man, the myth, the legend, and I, this is kind of a fun question, because I've been asking this to most of my guests in the warm-up uh, questions, but also you are quite the accomplished cook if uh, any Gwen Jorgensen YouTube viewers know. So if you had Gordon Ramsay coming over for dinner, what would you make for him? Yeah, I'd, I'd actually do breakfast for dinner. I'd do uh, I'd do an omelet, um, and then I'd, I'd even go like a little bit. I know he's a triathlete at times. I'd go a little bit athlete style and do it with rice and uh, keep it really simple. But I'd love to show him the, uh, the rice that I do. And then obviously, like I think the most simple thing, um, but challenging to get right, is just an omelet. That that is uh, simple, but yet profound. I'm sure you could could nail it. What is uh, 
What are Patrick's biggest tips for a good omelet? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that you've got to do is you've got to have the right amount of butter in the pan. You've got to have uh, beautiful eggs, and then you've got to know exactly, you know, it's a balance. Eggs, everybody wants to overcook them. You've got to undercook them, and you've got to have the pan uh, heated correctly. So uh, well, well-oiled, well well well-heated pan and then you've got to know how to distribute the eggs across it and then and then the uh the fold and the flips are 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 kind of take some time to get right but yeah that's what i would do awesome little did the listener know that a running podcast could turn into a food podcast so i appreciate it we're kind of killing two birds with one stone you know yeah i love it i love it okay so getting into a little more serious of a note um going all the way back uh, to your childhood years. Could you take us through uh, what those years looked like? And additionally, um, just to give us some perspective, did you play any sports or were you active in any way, shape, or form? Sure. So reflecting back, always had a bike, always was doing some sort of bike riding, obsessed with it, whether it was BMX bike, mountain bike, road bike, you name it. Um, I always wanted to be on my bike. Uh, I began working in a bike shop when I was 14 years old had no idea what I was doing, um, <laughs> but learned, learned a ton. And, you know, I've really figured out and I spent, you know, the next 10 years learning all sorts of stuff about bikes. And I still cycling is a huge passion of mine. Um, you know, I just don't get as much time to do it as I, as I used to, but, you know, I rode my bike yesterday, today it's raining. I'll ride my bike tomorrow. Uh, I, I still always, I'll always bike riding will always be a passion of mine. So at what point in your life did you start veering into competitive cycling? When I was 14, I would say that's when it really kind of amped up and I, and I understood like that bike racing was, you know, for me, it was a hobby and, and a dream to then become a profession. Um, and slowly it just started snowballing into like, okay, this is, I would just go like deeper and deeper with it. And then I was a, a low level professional for two years. And, and in that time, that's when I met Gwen. And that's when I kind of, I realized I couldn't be world-class in as a cyclist, but I had, um, I had an idea that I could be a world-class caretaker and use what I had learned in bicycle racing to that point to, to provide Gwen with the best care possible. Mm-hmm. So out of curiosity, because I don't know too much about cycling, is there some sort of uh, club that you do it for? Um, I'm sure the uh, I'm sure things have changed from when you grew up to how things are now. But was there some sort of club you joined or team, or was it mainly just kind of hopping in different uh, road races or whatever you might call them? Sure. So I've I've been on a ton of different clubs and teams throughout my year. I would say that the really the really cool thing about cycling is that there's always a club nature to it when you're riding with other people, whether it's an official club or uh, it's just a group of people riding together. Um, I think the best thing about cycling is that it's very social. So as a, as a young kid, I was 13, 14 years old, I was riding with professionals that were in there. And when I say professionals, I mean like people that had a job full time uh, that were, you know, forties or fifties and they could have been doctors, attorneys, et cetera. So people that I would say, a lot of people that have that had a high degree of success in their life that I was exposed to and surrounded by that I was able to observe and see habits from their professional life and then see it blended with their hobby and and learn from that. Interesting. That's that's super interesting. So, what is uh, a principle uh, or something you learned from one of those group rides, just overhearing or conversations from these pretty well distinguished people you would ride with? discipline um and the discipline could be riding in inclement weather the discipline could be getting up at six in the morning to do a ride at seven um you know cycling is a sport that's challenging mentally and physically just because it's the the nature of it is is you can be in a group and the group you can spend a lot of time at such a high uh, level of your peak fitness right it's not like running where you can just you run out of gas so soon so i think there's always a mental battle that seems to be always going on on the road because you can you can um you're navigating this expensive bicycle there's a lot of variables and i think you're always engaged uh, on a physical and mental level at a at a 
at a much higher rate than if you were just running down the road, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally. So at what point in your kind of cycling career did you realize that uh, you had potential in the sport and that it could take you somewhere? I must have been like 20, 21 years old when I was winning some, like, I guess it would be like high-level local races. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm, I would have never imagined winning this race two or three years ago. This is kind of cool. And to like understand that I could manipulate and dictate the race uh, and that that became very that became very fun for me I was I recognized early on that I didn't have a ton of we'll call it natural talent you know I don't think I was blessed with a massive vo2 or you know naturally like super lean or anything like that but I I realized that I could simply outwork other people and I that ultimately was that what I learned there are lessons that have brought me to my next, uh, I guess, little venture in life uh, with this athlete representation piece. You know, I might not be the smartest person in the room, but I can be proud and know that I'm going to that I'm going to put in more work effort than my counterparts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at what point in uh, this cycling journey did you, quote unquote, turn professional um, and use it more? Uh, as like an everyday thing and put more time and energy into it. Yeah, when I was 23 years old. Uh, and I got a call. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. My bad. Yeah, no, that's fine. I was uh, I was 23 years old and I got a call from a gentleman named Frankie Andreu who competed in the Tour de France nine times and finished it. He was running a professional cycling team uh, and he, he called me. I was in college and he said, hey, Pat, I've heard amazing things about you. We, we'd like you to be part of our team for next year. So getting that call from Frankie was, was incredible. Um, you know, again, it was a really small team and, uh, I, I formed some lifelong friendships with, with teammates I had, uh, from that team. Um, and I'm, it was, a, it was an awesome two years, but the reality of cycling is, is it's super hard. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, and I'm, and you've got to just, you've got to ride all the time. You've got to ride your bike all the time. And it's normally, it always seems like the weather's uh, never amazing. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy that I get to just ride my bike now as a hobby. I really miss, I really miss the training. I miss the, I love doing what I would call like adventure rides. But as far as like the super hard training, or always having to ride in bad weather. And then I would say now the biggest thing is that, you know, the road safety, um, I'm happy that I get to now just ride as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, So for someone who doesn't know too much about cycling, this might seem like a weird question, but could you take us through what a normal training day or training week looked like for you back then when you were trying to compete on a, a big national level? 1,000 kilometer weeks. So for the, for a person from the U S that's 620 miles a week, um, you know, roughly that would be 25 to 30 hours a week on the bike. Um, and you can just divide that, you know, by seven days a week. So in, you know, the, the best that I was ever riding, what I would do is three weeks on two days off, three weeks on two days off. And then, um, you know, you, again, it's just, it's really simply just riding your bike a ton. Um, sometimes that could be two sessions a day, one session a day, but where I was, when I was going to college, I was living in a place called Mankato, Minnesota, and the road riding there was fantastic. It wasn't the hilliest, um, but I could leave the house I was living at, have zero stoplights and do four or five hour loops in different directions every single day and ride essentially wherever I wanted. I had a, I had, I went to the, this is, this is dating myself now, but I went to a Barnes and Noble and I got a Minnesota County map where there was a very high detailed map of, of every County and where Mankato was, it was on the border of three different counties. So I had three counties around me and it listed every single road in them. So pre what I would do is I would, and this is all, you got to remember, this is really kind of, be this, the beginning of smartphones, but, but none of us had iPhones back then. Um, so I, what I would do is I would memorize the map ahead of time. And even if there was going to be confusing sections where I was connecting all these tiny dirt roads, I would write down on post-it notes and put the post-it notes in plastic bags <laughs> to remember my turn. Um, 
So I would look at the map and I would always want to discover new roads. And it was like always a mission, like, okay, every day, okay, I did 80 miles today, but I did four miles of new roads. That was cool. And like, that would be my little mission that I would have every single day was always, uh, with always some sort of exploration and adventure. That is such an awesome story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was a, That's a good story, but it's also funny. And I'm sure um, if you haven't already, I don't know if he would be capable of understanding that. But like when Stanley gets into cycling more or whatever, that would oh. be a fun story to share. He, to try and explain to Stanley that like when I wrote, when I grew up bike riding, this was pre-Garmin, pre-smartphone, pre-Strava. These were all things that basically we're starting right when I was quitting, but they're not, I mean, we did not have the technology that, that athletes just all take for granted Mm -hmm. today, including myself. I would had, I had a, if I would have had an iPhone and a, you know, a Wahoo or a Garmin, forget about it. I would have been like, I would have loved it. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it uh, has changed training dramatically. Like I can't even imagine not having, and this isn't to say I'm a slave to my GPS watch, but I can't imagine uh, not having a Garmin for easy days or not be able to like check, you know, a pace on a tempo run or whatever. Um, So it's cool hearing a different perspective on that. So uh, from your two years of professional cycling, what are some of your biggest takeaways? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me was, um, you know, I had just seen the confrontation of seeing people that were better than you was something that, you know, wasn't, wasn't fun for me to onboard, but I could see teammates that were much more professional than I wanted to be. So I had teammates, you know, that were doing all the little stuff, core, you know, going geeking out, weighing their food. That was, those were things that I was not prepared to do. I would say more mentally to be, to be a higher level professional than I was at the time. So I would say the biggest thing for me was just looking, being confronted by my competition, even though they were my teammates and accepting it and going, okay, I'm not prepared to be that pro. Like these guys are another level than I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's part of why I walked and that's part of why I walked away from the sport. It was like I saw a level and I wasn't prepared to do the work to go beyond where I currently was physically. Mm-hmm. So was it sad kind of uh leaving a professional realm or was it exciting realizing um that this could just be a fun hobby that you could do for as long as you could ride a bike? I wasn't sad. Um, I was, I was really happy of what I got to do as a professional athlete. And, you know, I think having Gwen as a, I'll call it a distraction at the time and, and, an adventure that was much more, um, I guess, positive for me because she was world-class. That was something that I was really excited to, to help her out with. So moving into Gwen's career, uh, could you take us through um, how you met her? And when you first met, uh, this is kind of a fun uh, side question, did you see an Olympic gold in her future? (laughs) I met Gwen on a bike ride in 2011. Uh, We're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that on June 8th. Um, I, I didn't understand that she was a triathlete riding a road bike and we met in Wisconsin, but she, and I asked her where her next triathlon was, and she said in Germany. And all I could think was, wow, that's a really long ways to go <laughs> for a triathlon. Like, you know, I, I didn't understand that she was already at a, competing on the world stage. I was thinking she was like a club athlete or just, I guess, something – I didn't even know you, I didn't really grasp that you could go to the Olympics for triathlon at that time. So, you know, I, I met Gwen, we'd been, we weren't even really dating, but just talking and, and she was filling me in on what races she was going to. And so to answer your question, like absolutely did not see or comprehend that, uh, that Gwen would win a gold medal, uh, you know, five years after we met. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving into her actually, uh, winning gold in Rio, uh, what was it like seeing that and spectating it? Massive relief for, for me when she crossed the line. I mean, obviously it was the culmination of setting a, a, a huge goal four years previously, investing fully 
and being incredibly vocal about what she wanted to achieve. So if you go back and you were to go through old articles, you'll see Gwen saying, I want to win a gold medal in Rio. That's what I'm going to set out to do. Um, she was incredibly vocal about it for four years. She had surrounded herself with an amazing team, an amazing group of sponsors, and they all got on board the train with her and were like, yep, uh, you know, we, we want to win a gold medal with you. And it was, for me, to, to see it was one of really the coolest things I've ever been a part of and witnessed. And it, it was, um, it's such a fun moment in time to go back and reflect on. So, yeah, you know, when I think about her crossing the finish line in Rio, a huge amount of relief, right? Because that, that four years was so stressful. Mm-hmm. There's, a photo, there's a photo of us the morning she raced in London in 2012. And then you can look at a photo of us in Rio in 2016. It looks like we've aged 12 years in four. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the that was the stress that she onboarded um, by taking on that massive goal. So yeah, huge, huge, huge accomplishment. I think about it every single day, and I'm 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 so proud of the way that she conducted herself. And there's so many lessons that I've learned along the uh, along the way with her. Mm-hmm. So you speaking of her making that big goal back in 2012 to bring back gold in 2016, and obviously uh, it ended up happening, which is just such an awesome story. But why do you think it's important to set big goals like that and then back them up just as Gwen did? Accountability. So I think the biggest thing for Gwen was she was holding herself accountable when service providers would come into her circle, whether it was a massage therapist, bike mechanic, you know, goggle sponsor, you name it, they knew what the standard was. She was saying, I'm training for a gold medal. I need your gold medal support. And I think so. The, the word for me is accountability. Mm-hmm. So Gwen ultimately decides to go all in on running, at least at this stage in her career. Um, so can you take us behind that decision um, to go all in on running? And then also, what were your thoughts on that when it first happened? That she's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's no secret, Gwen's that running was the favorite of Gwen's three disciplines. Um but you do you did have an athlete walk away from the sport that they were world class at uh, at the peak of her career. I think that just shows that you know she was proud of the work that she had done, but to be a person that was successful in life, she wanted to chase what she was passionate about, and ultimately that that was running for her. So yeah, what did she seek out? She sought out the best run group in the world and wanted to wanted to give her best uh, to this sport mm-hmm. and had a ton of setbacks along the way. You know, um, she had to recover from giving birth to our son. She had a massive uh, Achilles surgery. Um, so it has not been a smooth five years, but it has been highly, highly enjoyable. And, uh, you know, I think that she's her work ethic is contagious, and I think that everyone that she surrounds herself with feels that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know this ties back a little bit to Gwen's career, um, but also what you are doing now. Um, so can you take us through the decision um, to go into sports uh, sports management? Yeah, it was an accident. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was contacted by a young woman uh, named Ellen Noble, just over two years ago and she said you know geez i you you live with a high performance endurance female who's got a great group of sponsors do you think you could help me out and i thought well geez um i never thought about it like that <laughs> you know i i bet i could yeah you know i'm not i'm not gwen's agent but i've learned quite a bit and i think i could i think i could map something out for you that would make sense um and so yeah i mean that was now i've got five clients and I think it's it's been something that has been really really enjoyable for for me and for Gwen we you know forever I thought I was going to own a bike shop and that's what we were going to do when Gwen was done with her career Uh, and I think this this happened by accident but it's something that Gwen and I both love 
Uh, Gwen loves reading contracts. She's also a CPA, so she loves doing book work. And, and this seems to be a really, really natural fit. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from being an agent or even ways in which you've grown um, since you first picked up the phone and decided to help this young woman out? Yeah, uh, empathy is the biggest one. So I think you've got to be, you've got to always understand, you've got to understand what the client wants and you have to understand what a brand wants. And then you've got to figure out where can we align those two pieces. So I think it's, the biggest one for me is listening, it's understanding, and then it's, it's, uh, it's going, okay, such and such athlete wants, they've got this big audacious goal, where, where can we find brands that want to align with this and be a part of this? Um, and then now the landscape, I mean, compared to from when I was an athlete and when social media was starting compared to where it's come to 10 years later, it's completely changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't even imagine where we're going to be or what we're going to be talking about in 10 years from now as far as that, as far as sports marketing goes. So, you know, I'd say the biggest thing is always is, is, is listening, understanding, and, and trying to learn. Um, so out of curiosity, out of the people you represent in the sport, um, what, uh, how many do cycling, how many do triathlon, and how many do running? Is it split across or is it mainly cycling? Yeah, sure. I think it's all cycling right now, and I've got one triathlete. So, yeah, no runners right now. Gotcha. Is that something you want to venture into, or are you more into cycling because that's the background you had? You know, I'd love to venture into other sports. I'd love to, you know, at some point have a tennis player or a golfer or a CrossFit athlete or NASCAR driver. You know, I'd love to get into other sports and understand them. I think the themes are the same. It's about creating value and pointing back to ROI and then also having a big piece on performance. So I think the themes are the same. I just, I naturally fall into the cycling bit. Um, seems like because that's where I use, that's where I have, like, I, I secretly have a passion there for, for cycling um, that I can't, uh, that I can't avoid. So speaking of value, as you just did a little bit, what makes an athlete valuable to a specific brand? Sure. So it could be a couple different things. One, I mean, the number one thing is winning, right? That's, that's the biggest conversion tool is winning. Now we can pull back from that and understand, okay, if they're not winning in a year of COVID and there's no events, what else are they doing? Um, YouTube has become a fantastic platform for, I would say, capturing emotion and what are athletes doing and what stories are they telling when they aren't racing, right? So if an athlete is getting ready for the New York City Marathon, well, instead of just focusing on that one week period of the marathon, I would encourage an athlete to bring up, I want to come on their journey for the 12 weeks or the 16 weeks that they're getting ready for the New York City Marathon and seeing the ups and downs of that training, right? Um, and I think what you'll find is even if the athlete gets fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, 11th on the day, at New York city, they can win the lead up to that race and what they were doing and how they were capturing emotion, uh, of, of fans that, that were watching the entire time. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, what are some of your favorite, I mean, you just mentioned YouTube, so I'm sure that's one of them. Um, but what are some of your favorite ways that your athletes or other athletes that you've seen, um, expand their brand and make themselves more valuable? Yeah, triathlon is cool, right? Because, and cycling too, because you are a moving billboard and you can put, there's really, there's not a lot of rules and regulations around the traditional brand that you can place on a kit. So I love, I love those sports because it's still the wild west as far as branding. Outside of that, it seems to be that video and most, and primarily YouTube are the number one tools for, uh, holding videos and making them free to view to other people. So whether that's us showing what you eat in a day or showing us your biggest session or a bike review, uh, it seems to be that currently YouTube is the best platform for athletes to, to show and, and uh, demonstrate what they're up to. Mm-hmm. So moving into kind of uh, the future of sports marketing and such, um, do you know the athlete, and this is just super popular among high schoolers and collegians or people who watch running YouTube, um, do you know the athlete special or do you follow him at all? 
I do. You know, I don't watch all of his videos, but I've absolutely had uh, YouTube suggest some to me, and I, I know uh, I know what he's up to. Okay, so with that being said, that you know him now, I can ask this follow-up question. Um, what were your thoughts on seeing him signed with the Brooks Beast? It's awesome. I mean, I, I don't... I don't think I'm going to offend. I don't think I'm going to offend him by saying like I don't know that his best strength will be winning on race day, but what he can do the other six days of the week with providing great content online—that's what brands are looking for. So that's a fantastic example of an athlete that said, "You know what? My shot of winning the New York City Marathon or such and such 10K, whatever, is very limited, and it's going to be very challenging to do." Here's what I can control. I can control the kind of content that I'm going to want to do. And guess what? He's been doing it for so long. Brand started coming to him and said, okay, look, we see that you're doing this many views a week on YouTube. We're get, we can give you X amount of dollars for that because we see value on it. Keep doing what you're doing. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I love what he's doing. And I think uh, athletes should look at him as an example of, of ROI for sure. Cause he, cause he's given it to Brooks. Yeah. So going a little deeper into this case. Um, so obviously the details of the contract aren't super, super popular, but back when he first signed, it was kind of made clear that, um, he had like a one year contract until the trials. And if he hit the standard and raced at the trials, um, they'd continue to provide for him and do a longer term contract. Um, but if they didn't, they'd have to reconsider or what have you. Um, so with that being said, I had a conversation with a friend a few months ago and I was basically saying, um, I really wonder if Brooks, um, even if Spencer doesn't make the trials or if he gets injured or something, uh, if they'll still re-sign him because of the great impact he's had on the Brooks running community. Because Brooks, as as they are well known, they make good shoes, but especially in terms of like high school running and such, um, he has dramatically expanded their brand and also, you know, sold so many shoes, which is uh, one of the other jobs of a professional athlete representing a brand. So with all that being said and me rambling on, um, if Spencer doesn't hit this trial standard, uh, do you think Brooks will continue to uh, renew this contract um, just because of the impact he's had on the brand? Or do you think the performance side will come in um, just because at the end of the day, he's a professional runner and that's what professional runners are expected to do? I have no idea what the terms of his deal look like as far as dollar amount, expectations, what Spencer's like to work with. But just from an outsider who's truly on the outside, I don't know anybody at Brooks. I know nothing. I don't know. Spencer wouldn't know me from my neighbor. Um, it, it has to seem like they're getting fantastic value from him. And I would be an advocate for that. I don't care if you race, if you do Olympic trials, if you don't do the standard, keep doing what you're doing. If you just keep putting out videos on the internet every day mm -hmm. we think that's fantastic and yes you are capturing emotion from a younger demographic and we love that and we do see value in that great job we're going to renew this deal mm -hmm. yeah so on a similar note uh what are your thoughts on new groups that are popping up such as uh tin man elite who also regularly posts on youtube um and also other groups such as like the oac i don't know if you saw this but um they're yeah. doing a whole um, YouTube series with role recovery that a lot of people loved. Um, so what are your thoughts on those groups and how they're shaking up the scene in terms of marketing themselves? Yeah, they're doing a fantastic job. I think, and the, from what I'm just observing in the shoe space, obviously, whether it's Hoka on, you know, the Tin Man doesn't have their, the group, they're all elevating the game. And these are all, these all, to me look like organizations that if I was 23 years old and coming out of college and thinking about being a professional runner, these groups would all seem like awesome places to go. So, you know, rising tide floats all boats and we're seeing that. And these, I would, these, these clubs that are, that are doing a lot of content um, are killing it. So yeah, awesome stuff. So within the last year, and obviously it's still ongoing um, with the COVID pandemic, um, how did that, change contracts and sponsorships and kind of shake up the game 
it exposed it exposed athletes you know the athletes that were only focused on results they had no races to go do the athletes that were practicing doing content coming out with videos that wanted to um, be forward facing they had a year covid was the best thing that ever happened to them as an athlete and as an individual and how brands saw them so uh the the athletes that that wanted to be anonymous what really really last year was very very challenging for them uh so what is some advice you'd have to um a collegian coming out of college that's good enough to sign professional what is some advice you would give to him find your niche so in the case of let's use a running let's use a running as a as a basis for this i want to see shoe review videos or gps videos that you're or, you know some some sort of gadget or gizmo from running that you're going deep with i still have yet to see a runner do a real in-depth nutrition breakdown where they test out every single nutrition product right these are all um so i would just say don't be afraid to go super narrow and then really deep with a, with a certain topic um, and then we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I didn't ask a specific question on it, and I'm super interested in this. Um, how have contracts contracts changed within the last 10, 5 or 10 years ago, and how do you see them changing within the next 5 or 10 years in the future? Tough to say. You know, I think at, at the end of the day, results are still going to be priority number one, but I do think you'll see some brands that experiment and dabble in other arenas where they're looking for brand ambassadors and they don't really care about the results piece. Let's use Spencer as an example. There's a world where a brand could go to him and say, we're going to pay you, let's make up a number, $3,000 a month, but we expect you do two videos a month. And if you do that, this is great. Keep doing what you're doing. So um, I think you'll see more brands get away from the traditional results-based style contract and say, look, we love what you're doing. Dominic, we love what you're doing on this podcast. We want to sponsor your podcast. We're going to pay you a thousand bucks a month. You're going to bring on three guests total per month. And if you do that, your paychecks will keep coming. I, I think that's where we're headed. Well, that sounds like an amazing thing. Hopefully one day someone will give me $1,000 a month. No, I'm totally joking, although that would be awesome. Um, uh, out of curiosity, um, just because we're talking about professional uh, landscape or collegians trans transitioning into professional, um, but on the flip side, uh, do you think you'll see more high schoolers um, expand their brands for colleges um, like college recruiting, and do you think that will matter at all or not as much just because it's a little uh, different? Ultimately, the NCAA will be the, will be the dictator of that. Um, the, the guidelines at the NCAA with athletes doing deals is changing very, very quickly. Um, name, image, and likeness. Athletes, college athletes are going to get to start doing deals next year uh, so it's going to be now in a world where previously if you were if you were a collegiate athlete the anything any money that came in had to be reported to the ncaa now you're going to be able to get athletes that can do all kinds of deals that are available to them and they're going to be able to range from any sort of value so you're going to be able to finally have you know the star quarterback for one of the best programs is going to be able to make money from whoever decides, you know, they want to give it to them. There's going to be worlds where like women can do makeup deals. I mean, it's just like, it's going to be the wild west in the NCAA. And then that's going to be done in tandem with, you know, the videos that kids are doing just on their phones now. I mean, forget about it. So there, the, the landscape in the next 10 years is going to change a ton. Mm hmm. So we've talked a lot about contracts, but not necessarily what goes into a contract and what a contract even exactly is. Um, so could you take us through those two things? Sure. So a contract is simply an agreement between the individual and a brand. 
typically the brand is going to have expectations and they're going to place it in the contract for the athlete or individual to fulfill. That's the, that's the easiest way I can break it down for you. And generally, uh, I've, I've heard of this, so I'm just interested. Um, how, how do bonuses work? Uh, because I've heard that like, for instance, we'll just take X runner, X runner has a contract, um, and he's paid, uh, whatever, a yearly amount. But then if he makes the Olympics, then he gets, you know, X bonus. How does that work? And, um, do most contracts have bonuses in them? So those would be things, again, these are all just items that we could be, that we could agree to. So say you're, uh, you're a running brand and I'm an athlete and you're just basically going to say, look, Pat, I'm going to pay you $50,000. And if you qualify for the Olympics, I'm going to pay you another 25,000. And if you win a gold medal, I'll pay you a hundred thousand. And I would say, well, geez, you know, I was kind of hoping that you'd pay me, uh, what if you paid me? 55,000 for my base salary. And then instead of qualifying for the Olympics, because you're paying me so much, that's just a given. So we'll remove that one. But if I win a gold medal, now I'd like $200,000. So the number one thing to remember in these contracts or negotiations are there really are no rules. There are typically guidelines. And as somebody who's a sports agent, it's my job to understand and navigate what are those guidelines and those parameters, but we can, it is, uh, you know, it's constantly a little bit of a tug of war and you, you can push and pull on them. Mm-hmm. So generally are most uh, brands and companies, do most of them have the same sort of contracts or does it vary depending on the specific company? All different. Yeah, totally, totally different. They all, they've all got their own, um, They've all got their own attorneys on staff and they navigate, you know, those and what they, what they place into them totally differently. Gotcha. Um, a few last questions. Um, so the, a few months ago I read the book, um, I think it's called the secret race by David Walsh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's basically about cycling and doping, uh, the Lance Armstrong scandal and all of that. So as an agent for athletes or even just a spectator of many sports, um, what goes into like, in your mind, are you at all worried about doping in the sport? Um, and, what does it look like for when you are trying to take an athlete on? Um, if that makes sense, if any of that makes sense. Yeah. So integrity is the biggest one for me. You know, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have any time. I work for an organization, uh, rally cycling and the owner there. They've done a fantastic job of always having clean athletes on their team. And that's something that I'm really, that I really hold accountability to myself for and uh you know you're you've always got to be aware of who you work with and search out and make sure that they match uh your desire to compete on a fair and level playing field so uh on a similar level um obviously gwen is big in the track and field world um do you what are your thoughts on the so-called super shoes yeah, it's funny. I, so the super shoe thing to me, it doesn't really phase me because I come from a world where we're all racing on $10,000 bikes. So a $285 pair of shoes to me when that's what a set of tires cost in my world, <laughs> it's really tough to, um, I, it's tough for me to even look at it and, and give it more than a, a minute or two. So, you know, I think what we saw was the playing field get pushed in shoe development. And I think what people forget is that seven or eight years ago, Nike's marathon shoes were not competitive and they invested a ton of time and money and energy into having the best shoe. We've got a world, I think, where the ASICs is very competitive. It seems like this new new balance prototype that's going around is again, super fast shoe adidas has got one so i kind of feel like we're coming to an end of the super shoe debate where everybody all of the other brands now are on a similar playing field um yeah no i completely agree and i've talked to uh and again the sport is gonna develop in so many areas and we're just starting to see um 
shoes develop in uh, more performance, uh, better performance. But like uh, going back, I know I'm rambling a little, but like you go to the 2010 Nike marathon shoe. Um, people could complain back in 2010 that that shoe was a lot more advanced than the 1990 version. So regardless, um, shoes are always advancing. So I completely, completely agree. And honestly, it's, I think, good for the sport in some sense. Um, And then people who claim that, um, you know, and I'm more talking about the Nike spike now, not necessarily the marathon shoe, um, but that it takes off dramatic times and that, you know, we should have a new record book for uh, the super shoes. And it's like, I own the Nike pair myself. And while I do think they help me, um, to some extent, um, during races, I think any spike I would wear does just because that's how they're built. Um, and if anything, I think just the recovery time is a lot easier because there's a lot more foam. But with that, with all that being said, um, the last question before we get into the rapid fire questions, um, this, podcast is mainly high school based or college based so for a high schooler or a college listener um so like a younger listener listening to this podcast who wants to pursue a professional career in their future what would be your biggest piece of advice to them be curious ask questions and uh look to be challenged those are my three those are my three little pieces um so, yeah, and then find people that are better than you and say, you know, what, how did you do that? What could I do? Am I doing enough? Those are, those are the, uh, those are the questions I'd be asking a lot and as, as to as many people as possible. Awesome. Yeah, this has been such an awesome episode. And as a little cherry on top, we will now go through the rapid fire questions, also known as the going to the well segment. So Pat, are you ready for these seven questions? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Number one, favorite piece of cycling gear or technology? Oh, uh, bib shorts. Yeah, those those are you. You need those to ride a long time. Bib shorts for sure. Number two, what is the scariest animal you've encountered while on a bike ride? A bear. Oh man, is there a story behind that one? Not really. No, I mean not a good one. Um, you know what? wasn't scary but last year also in park city i saw like a massive massive moose um those are just like those are kind of my two two uh two big run-ins okay number three favorite place to go in portland uh pock pock before it closed is that a restaurant it sounds like yeah that was a restaurant um you know obviously the other really the one is uh forest park for 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 me, it's bike riding in there, and I was also I also used to hike with family in there when you'd go on the backpack. See, I was expecting a forest park answer. So when you first said the restaurant, I was like, "Oh, what's that?" Um, just because the three I've had uh, Sean McGordy, Elise Cranny, and Shelby Houlihan on the podcast before, and when I've asked them yep. this question, they've every single one of them has said forest park. So um, I definitely want to go check it out sometime in my future. <laughs> You'll be there. Okay, number four. If you could represent any athlete who you don't already represent, who would it be? Ooh, good one. Um, I'd go back in time and do Wayne Gretzky. Ooh, interesting. That's a good pick. Number five is what book has had the most impact on your life? Yeah, Never Split the Difference. Fantastic negotiation book. That sounds like a really fascinating book. I'll definitely have to check that out. Do you know who it's written by? Yeah, Chris Voss. Awesome. Yeah, for anybody listening, I'll put a link to the show notes for whoever wants to check it out. Okay, number six, what is the most impressive workout you've seen Gwen do? It could be triathlon or running. Yeah, so we used to do a session for Gwen uh, to mimic the demands of the bike course in Rio. So incredibly steep hill uh, on the course in Rio that everybody said was going to be terrible for her and that she would really struggle on. Uh, Gwen and her coach, Jamie Turner, found a hill in the Basque region in Spain to mimic the demands of competition and really exceed them. Gwen trained exclusively, you know, on that hill to get ready for the course in Rio. And the session was incredibly simple and very monotonous. But uh, the work that she did there is really what solidified a gold medal for her. That's awesome. That's a that's a fun story. Have you been back to that hill since winning Rio? Never. I'm sure there's some, some <laughs> nightmares on that thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I've got... Uh, at some point, I'll revisit it, but uh, not not in the near future. <laughs> okay, last but not least, number seven. 
If you could eat only one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chipotle. Ooh, Chipotle is amazing. <laughs> Actually, um, fun little story before we before we leave. Um, my sister's getting married this Saturday, so shout out to my sister. And uh, I texted her about a year ago when she was finalizing all of the details, you know, where it was going to be at and, you know, what the food would be. And I said, um, I said, uh, her her name's Annie. I said, Annie, do you want to have a ordinary wedding or a fun wedding? And she was like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, well, do you want to have the ordinary slab of beef and potatoes that literally every wedding has? Or do you want to be fun and creative and ha- have Chipotle and save some money while you're at it? Um, so I sold her on that idea of Chipotle. So I'm excited to have Chipotle this Saturday. But with all of that being... Sorry, what'd you say? So she's doing Chipotle for her wedding. Yeah, she's catering it. And not only uh, is it amazing food, but she's saving so much money or they're saving so much money just because it's so expensive to cater, you know, the normal wedding meal. Uh, No, I mean, we, Gwen and I, we did uh, for our wedding, we did pizza. We had, we had our wedding at a pizza restaurant. Oh, wow. Everyone. I mean, unless they're lying to me, everybody loved it because it was just super laid back, big old pizza buffet. And like, who doesn't love pizza and beer? Yeah, no, that uh, sounds amazing. Um, Also, one other thing they're doing, man, we're kind of covering all the subjects. We covered food, we covered running, we covered cycling, we covered contracts. Anyways, uh, the other thing they're doing, um, they're not doing a wedding cake, they're doing a ice cream bar so that'll also be fun we did an ice cream bar at ours too amazing man we're just uh copying the lemuse over here so anyways it has been an honor talking to you patrick this past hour i appreciate you giving me the time and uh showing me the ropes on sports management i really appreciate it and it has been an honor speaking with you yeah dominic thanks for having me on and and, uh i love what you're doing so keep it up thank you Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Running Effect. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please like, subscribe, and share to help us out. A lot of big content coming your way, especially now that school is finally over um, and we can get some things going over your guys' way. Um, So stay tuned for all of that. But meanwhile, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Happy running. God bless you all.